Galatians 3, verse 29. Just one verse, and there will be a few verses that guide our unpacking of Scripture tonight. Thinking about the covenant of grace. But Galatians 3 will be where we end our consideration, so we'll read it now. Apparently, too, my cold is not going to cooperate, so you'll have to put up with that. We'll get through it together. Much bigger problems in the world, I suppose. So don't mind me. I've got, it's pretty amazing back here, I've got Kleenexes arrayed in all different places in this pulpit, so I think we should be good. Galatians 3, verse 29. The word of God given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Galatians 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Belgian Confession, Article 17. Page 77 in the back of your blue hymnal, if you'd like to follow along. I'll just read it for us tonight. Article 17. Speaking of the recovery of fallen man. We believe that our most gracious God, in his admirable wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had thus thrown himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself wholly miserable, was pleased to seek and comfort him when he trembling fled from his presence, promising him that he would give his son, who would be born of a woman, to bruise the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. Wonderful truth. Let us consider these things together. How does one respond to what we just read? Fallen man, recovered by God, comforted by him, promised something, promised redemption by his grace. When you hear that and when you think about how someone would respond to that, you can say, well, How they would respond tells you about the assumptions they're bringing to the table. How they respond to that truth tells you what they think about God and what they think about man. Uh, The words of our confession give us a clue. It says, this was according to God's marvelous wisdom and his marvelous goodness. It's something at which we are supposed to to marvel. We are to to be caught up in, in wonder about all that God has done in salvation. But in Today's world, and, and perhaps for, for many centuries now, uh, perhaps even going all the way back uh, to, to the fall itself and to the garden, there's been an inflated view of the self. It's, it's merely become more systematized, perhaps, in our world. But if you go back um, several generations and, and think about uh, some of the older ideas from previous centuries, you see that there really has been some significant changes in the way that people think about the self. This world used to be conceived morally, and the self used to be thought of as a moral creature who, believe, who lives before God. The self, the individual, has a responsibility and a calling to fulfill before his or before her God. And in recent decades, that thinking has been 
transformed. Our, our world, our, our country, this part of the world that has been blessed to see um, so much peace and prosperity was, was founded upon an idea of individualism, but it was an individualism that was cast in a more moral sense, a more moral world. So if you go back perhaps 50, 60 years, the world that perhaps some of you were raised in, people were taught that they should think for themselves, decide for themselves, provide for themselves, and work to serve others in personal and civic ways. It was an individualism, but it was a much healthier individualism. Today, the kind of individualism that we hear about is about finding yourself. It's about realizing uh, your best self. It's about carving out the greatest purpose for your life. You think if you, you go back a ways, the, the purpose for your life was given to you. You were put on this earth to, to serve others, to serve perhaps God, to glorify him. Hopefully that's uh, ultimately the purpose that you have. But in today's thinking, it's more about esteeming yourself. And in terms of morality, it's more about creating a moral world which makes sense for you. Uh, How do you determine what is right and wrong? Well, you you go and you look inside yourself. What feels feels right? In this way, intuition has uh, replaced truth and objective morality. Uh, Famously, American pastor Robert Schuller took this therapeutic approach and he Christianized it. He sort of brought it into the church, the discovery of the self. And he said, this is, a, this is a new reformation for the church to think about the self in these ways. It's not about being reconciled to God in a moral universe. It's about feeling good about yourself in a therapeutic one. That's what the Christian faith for many people became about. Uh, he was really only taking the logical next step from his own mentor is a pastor by the name of Norman Vincent Peale, who pastored in New York City, and a little bit of trivia, was the childhood pastor of our uh, current president. This kind of preaching trickled down into the mainstream of the American Christian mind. We still feel the effects of it today. Transformed the way that we think about doctrine. Transformed the terms of doctrine themselves. For instance, there's a There's a Bible out there called the the Serendipity Bible for Groups. And it takes the doctrine of the image of God and it says that what the image of God is really about, what it really teaches us, is that uh, since we we are image bearers of God, we have unlimited potential. We have potential to realize and to do anything as image bearers of God. Of course, the image of God, historically, is one of those teachings that we went to to say that God gave us a purpose, dominion, exercise rule over the world, and it reminded us how we had failed in that project. It reminded us that, that even though we're image bearers, we had fallen from our state of, of righteousness and holiness before God, a constant reminder that we could not fulfill the purpose that he had given to us. So these are some of the ways in which the world has changed. And it's so different now in these ways where we no longer think about the universe and the world primarily as a moral one. It was more about getting people to feel good about themselves. But we feel good about ourselves. That does not, it's not the same thing as actually being good, is it? 
And if we don't take time to realize and to know that before God we are not good, then we're missing one of the main thrusts of Scripture. Our Reformed Confessions and Catechisms talk about the state of fallen humans, fallen man, as one of sin and misery. The fall is not just a minor transgression of a boundary. It's a covenantal act with enormous consequences. But the beauty of our confessions and catechisms and even other ones that were given, for instance, the Westminster Catechism, says that even though we exist in a state of sin and misery, God, by his grace, through a Redeemer, brings us into an estate of salvation. From sin and misery to salvation. He is a God who saves. He is a God who delights to save and to show mercy. His mercy is as high as the heavens. He is gracious and he is compassionate. He has a heartfelt compassion for the lost in a general sense, just a a posture towards sin of a willingness to save. In Article 17, we learn a bit about how God does this. So we aim to remind ourselves how God does this. And, and when we understand how God does this with a proper worldview, and what I mean by that is uh, a worldview which has God as the creator cre- who created this world morally, with, uh, and there are moral implications to our life and even to our existence, when we begin to have that worldview and to, and to see the world through the eyes of our Lord, all of a sudden this message of grace comes to us not only transforms our lives, but fills us uh, with immense gratitude. For we understand, we begin to understand more and more what it is uh, from which God has saved us. So, the method of God saving. The method of God saving. How does he save? He saves through his covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. This covenant was first promised in response to the fall in Genesis 3, that does not mean that God said, i got to get a new plan, i got to figure something else out. This was, of course, decreed by God. But in the, the history of redemption, man falls, Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden. And we immediately, almost instantly, learn about something else that's going to take place. Even in the midst of God cursing, there was a promise given. So we read the first time that the gospel was preached. Paul will say this later on in the, in the book of Galatians, that the gospel was preached even all the way back then. He's speaking about Abraham. But really, in Genesis 3, we could even say that that is, one of the first, is, that, that is the first time that we hear the gospel preached. Genesis 3.15 says this. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is speaking to the serpent who has led Adam and Eve astray and couched within all of the curses that he is pronouncing on the world, upon the ground, saying that we will bring forth things from the earth by the sweat of our brow. Women's pain and childbearing will be greatly increased. And then God says, as he's speaking to the serpent, he gives this promise that there will be one who comes who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, he will overcome that which the serpent has done in the garden, which is to flip the world on its head and to to change 
and to reverse all of those effects. That was what God had promised. That's where we see the beginnings of the covenant of grace. And that gives shape to all of God's redemption throughout the scriptures. We see it formalized as it's given to the man Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 4, it says this, where the Lord speaks to Abram. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. (coughs) Here it is. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is really the the, the formal institution of God's covenant of grace. The covenant to Abraham, but really the, the, the larger picture, that which unifies it, is what Reformed people call the covenant of grace. And that language doesn't fill the Belgic Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism as much as to later documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Catechism. But the reason for that is because a couple generations after our documents are written, Reformed thinkers have had time to systematize these doctrines so that the the language that they were using was a little bit more developed. So that's to say that uh, our documents and, and the documents of American Presbyterians, the Westminster Confession, it's the same system of doctrine, but... Ours are earlier and theirs are later. And that's really the only reason why you don't see as much language about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, though there is some of that there as well. So as I said, this covenant of grace unifies God's redemptive work and it begins in Genesis chapter 3. That's not just to systematize what is happening, but rather it gives us a clear idea of what God is doing and what kind of God he is. As we learned this morning, he is a God who recovers the lost. He is a God who saves sinners. He is a God who is filled with compassion towards sinners. When Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden, Satan, the devil, probably thought that it was game over at that point. There was nothing else to do. God's servant had failed. Satan had won in the created realm. And that created realm was simply going to be his for the rest of eternity. And perhaps it would have been if not for God's promise of grace. You see, in this way, human history only continues after Genesis 3 because of Jesus Christ. The only reason for human history at all after the fall is because of Jesus. And that promise That God gives in Genesis 3, which gives shape to all of the Bible from that point forward. The confession uses vivid and descriptive language to describe what God does in response to the failure of man. It says, in God's marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, what did God do? He set out to Find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. What a terrifying reality this must have been for Adam. 
to know what it was like to stand before God in perfect knowledge and righteousness and holiness, to be upright, not to be unchangeable, but rather he was created upright and morally good, to know what that was like and then to experience in one fell swoop That that was lost. What a terrifying reality. And no wonder he flees from God. Our experience is different. We've only known the fallen nature and the fallen state. To be separated from God in those ways. Our experience is more like Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. He is caught up into the presence of the glory of God. And he is completely undone. That's what a fallen human being does in the presence of the glory of God and before his holiness. But Adam realizes that the deepest desire that had compelled him to give into the temptation that was placed before him was was an awful reality, a miserable failure for what he wanted and what he ultimately desired. There's a short story by an existentialist author that illustrates the point that everything on this earth that promises fulfillment is only going to leave you in despair or desperately wanting more. There's a husband and his wife that are taken away uh, on business into the big city for the first time. For the day, this husband is to go about uh, doing his business, and so he leaves his wife to tour the city for the day, and whatever she wants to do is fine. They're going to meet for dinner and uh, stay the night in the city at a hotel. During the day, the the, the wife is struck by a temptation that used to grip her heart, but she has not really felt it in her adult life. And she realizes that it is at this moment that that very temptation is, for the first time in her life, within reach. If she were to choose to do so, she'd just go off and give in to this temptation that was in her heart for years. But for the rest of the day, she keeps it out of her mind. She pushes against it. She goes and has, uh, meets up with her husband. They have dinner. They go back to her hotel. They go to bed. He falls asleep. And she is gripped by this temptation. And she actually sneaks out of the hotel room. And she goes and gives in, indulges in this fantasy. She sneaks back into the hotel before the morning light dawns. And of course, her heart feels much different. She's sobbing in her bed. Her husband wakes up and says, what is wrong? And she pushes him away. She says, nothing, just nothing. And the story ends. It's an existentialist story, so it ends in perfect existentialist anti-climax. The point is this, the, the moment that we, where we realize our sin the most, the feeling is one of desperation. And that into which we give is only going to leave us in despair or desperately wanting more. Adam ran from God. When we fall into the deepest sins, when, when, we, when we mess up the biggest points in our life where we do that, we are so ashamed and so desperate to experience forgiveness and grace. We want so badly to be able to go back and to wipe it away, to have the chance to do it over again. But the problem is that in our world, we do not pause long enough to ever think about these moments. We move on from them. We do not pause long enough to feel despair over sin to the extent that we often should. If we use what we know about God to esteem ourselves, 
rather than to see ourselves as fallen sinners, we will miss what the grace of God is meant to do in our lives and in our hearts in shaping our service to God and our thankfulness to him that he has forgiven us. God comforts the man. There's no going anywhere for Adam. He's fleeing from God. The confession says that God comforts him. He comforts him by giving the promise, the promise of his son. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that in Genesis 3, there really is no mention that this is the son of God. Rather, it's the seed of the woman. But it is the son because this is the covenant of grace, which finds its fulfillment in Christ, which gives shape to all of redemptive history, which gives shape to the covenantal structure of Abraham and Moses and David and the new covenant. It's pushing us forward to Jesus Christ. The covenant of works has been broken. Adam has failed. And so God gives this promise. God says this will be for you and for your children when he's speaking to Abraham. Be for you and for your children. So the call upon Abraham is to believe. To believe this promise. And he is the man of faith. And our children are protected in this covenant, and yet the call upon them is to believe as well, just as the call upon us is to believe. The call upon all of the people in the covenant of God, this covenant of grace, is to believe the promises of God and to trust in them. It's like what we talked about this morning, the knowledge of the truth. Do you know what the gospel is? Have you understood into some measure of depth the truth of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the call that he has upon our lives. This is God's method of saving, the covenant of grace. God has promised by his grace. He has given salvation by his grace. He accepts us by his grace. It's not only the method that we need to remind ourselves, but the mediator. The mediator of the covenant is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The Old Testament connects to the new Uh, in this doctrine of the covenant of grace because there is always the same mediator. Even going back to the Old Testament time, this is what gives the unity of God's redemptive plan. The mediator of the covenant of grace has always and will always be Jesus Christ. Those who were saved in the Old Testament times, they were not saved by their works. They were saved as Abraham was, believing in the promises of God. And covered by the work of Christ, even though that had yet to be enacted in history. See, that is the sovereign God that we serve. That he is able to save people through the work of his son, even though Jesus had not yet been born. So we think about Galatians chapter 3, which connects the ideas of Christ's work and the promises to Abraham. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul's point in Galatians, up to this point, has has been very clear. That human beings are not saved according to the works of the law. In Paul's day, there were those uh, who believed that it was Moses and not Jesus that really held the key to eternal life. You need to obey and to submit to the laws of Moses. But Paul says that the clearest use of the law in human experience is not to give a path to salvation, but to show that obedience to the law is always a dead end. Trying to attain salvation through the use of the law is always a dead end. That's what Paul 
is teaching us in the book of Galatians. It's meant to show that we are saved not through the law, but through a promise. And Paul's point is very important to understand here. We're only unpacking or thinking about this one verse. But very important to understand what Paul is doing. And thankfully, he's thinking like a reformed man. Because, of course, Paul is reformed, right? Yes. He's thinking in terms of the covenant of grace. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Here are the two biggest figures of the early Old Testament, Abraham and Moses. He says, Abraham actually lived first, 430 years before Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. And he did not receive the law of God, he received the promises of God. Therefore, Paul reasons, the law of God cannot wipe out the promises of God that was given before Moses received the law. Rather, the law serves the greater purpose of the promise. It undergirds it. And it teaches us something about the promise so that the truth of God can come through the promises of God so that we understand how God is saving humanity from their sin. And he does so how? He does so by, through the law, showing us that our sinful fallenness, if left to ourselves, we will always follow in the footsteps of Adam. We will always do what our father, Adam, has done. But this is why the promise of God to Abraham is so important. So important because it it shows us that God does not fail in his salvation. It increases our assurance of God's unchangeable salvation. Paul is saying, look, God gave a promise before the law. And therefore, we must know that the law must serve some greater purpose that is connected to the promise that he gave Abraham to save and to redeem and to restore all things. And so we read in Galatians 3, 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The point of this is to say that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promises given all the way back to the Garden of Eden and to belong to Jesus Christ by faith which is what Paul says is how you belong to Christ, is to be an heir of the promises made to Abraham. And to be an heir of Abraham is the promise of something even better. It is to be a child of God. Where Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. To be those of faith, is to belong to the God of the universe, to be adopted into his family. That's the method of God saving, the covenant of grace. His method of saving, the mediator of the covenant of grace is Jesus Christ. 
God's working is all of grace. It is his demerited favor, giving the opposite of what his human beings, his creatures, uh, deserved. We have the method and the mediator. All people who will stand before God in the day of judgment and be found righteous are those who are covered by the blood and the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. Even those who had faith before Jesus, Abraham himself. Reconciliation, redemption, resurrection, these all come forth because of this covenant of grace that, that gives shape to all of the scriptures. So two quick applications uh, as we close to those who belong to this covenant, the people of God, the covenant of grace. Those who are Christ's are to realize their new identity and live according to it. Paul says you are, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. So what about being Christ? What about being Christ's? Paul says in Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus, the same kind of language, if you are Christ's, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And so he says you live by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Romans 6, Paul really gives the key to to thinking about being Christ's and being united to him in his death and in his resurrection. He says, sin will no longer reign over you. Sin will no longer be what defines you. We say that in in question and answer one. He has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. So Romans 6, he says, you need to think about yourselves. You need to reckon yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. We need to seek Uh, to live in accordance with the realities that God has given to us and what he has made us, who he has made us to be in Jesus Christ. So that is first. Those who are Christ are to realize their new identity and live according to it. Live knowing that God has made you alive in Christ. Secondly, those who are Christ's will be raised on the last day because of their union with him. Jesus says, because I live, you also live will live. Romans 6, 5 says, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, that's already happened of course, and then those who are Christ's at his coming. If you belong to Jesus Christ, By faith. You are united to him in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And you can be sure that when he comes again, you will be raised with him. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and so we will always be with the Lord. So if you are Christ's, because of this covenant of grace, because of our God who saves, then you are to live in accordance with that new identity that you have been given. And secondly, you are to live with the assurance that because he has been raised, you too will be raised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your truth, for your word. May you you sanctify us through this truth by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing number 455.